Douglas Farrow, who is a theology professor, once commented, it is remarkable how little mention the ascension gets these days. Once it was seen as the climax of the mystery of Christ, but today it's something of an embarrassment. Strangely, I think he's right. Something about the ascension in particular seems to make even us Christians blush. We have no problem believing in the eternality of God, the incarnation of His Son in Jesus Christ. We have no problem believing in His miraculous ministry for ordinary people. And we especially have no problem in believing in His crucifixion, burial, and divine resurrection. But there's just something about the ascension that makes us just not sure how to talk about it. Or maybe not want to talk about it at all. Now maybe it's because that idea of the ascension, of Christ in physical form being received into the Father's eternal presence, going from our our temporary world and space into His eternal one, bodily. Maybe the, the idea just doesn't make total sense to us. That God would come down in a body, talking about His coming kingdom, acting as if He is going to begin His reign at any minute, and then after all that, He leaves? Or maybe we still have our own series of questions about how it works. How is it that God could take on human flesh, live in our midst, and still somehow, even all these years later, 2,000 to be uh, more precise, 2,000 years later, He's still alive in that body somewhere? And maybe we just can't quite wrap our heads around the physics or the metaphysics of it. And so we just don't really want to talk about it or even think about it. Well, whatever the reason is, I think we really shortchange ourselves of the good news of Jesus as our King with His coming kingdom when we skip over the doctrine of the ascension. So on today, which is as many in the church around the world celebrate it as Ascension Sunday. That is the Sunday after Ascension Day, which is always the 40th day after Easter. And for us, that always falls on a Thursday. Now that we've been in a season of celebrating His resurrection, that's what Easter is all about. That Christ overcame death for us. And that in Him, we might overcome death too. Well, now it's important for us to remember that that was significant because this moment too is significant. It's important that we remember and celebrate not only His resurrection from death, but His reign over all the living. That's why it's important that Christ has ascended to the Father's side. That's why this doctrine matters for us. Patrick Schreiner, who's a Baptist theologian, in a recent book that he wrote on this very topic, compares how we evangelicals tend to stop the Gospel story at Jesus' resurrection. He compares that to how one might kind of awkwardly pause an audiobook or pause a a, a story in in a weird place. So Schreiner recounts how he listens now. A lot of people do this, feel that they're busy in life and they they want to quote-unquote read or uh, be exposed to novels, but they just can't find the time. You know, with, 
with kids and bills and, and work and all this stuff. And so a lot of people, maybe on their commutes, listen to audiobooks. You know, books on tape is what we used to call it, but nobody knows what tape is anymore. And so he recounts listening to novels on audio while driving, while exercising, or, or getting ready for the day, or cleaning the house. And when he's done with whatever tasks he's going about, well, then he hits pause, no matter where he is in the story. And so on one occasion, he, he remembers he was pulling his car into the driveway. And the narrator of the book that he was hearing just said this, and then we all died. And then he turned off his car. The story wasn't over, much less the chapter, but he had reached his destination. Now that, he says, is how we unwittingly, or what we unwittingly do when we stop telling the Gospel at the resurrection and don't continue on to the ascension. We pause the story in an awkward place. We don't get the rest of the story. Is Paul Harvey, is that who used to say that? Yeah, I'm getting nods. When we leave out the ascension, the consequences of that oversight are not small. One theologian said this, Christians have tended to focus their attention on what Jesus has done. What He's done in the past. His life, His death, His resurrection, and what He will do in the future. His return and His reign. But the question remains for us, and it's a very pressing question for all Christians. What is He doing right now? What is He doing at 11.10 on a Sunday morning, for us at least, relatively speaking? Isn't that a question that we should all be deeply invested in? Folks, after what our society has watched in these past few weeks, and this week especially, the murder of 19 school children and two teachers in Texas, not to mention recent shootings in, in New York of elderly black people just trying to get their groceries, or, or Asian Christians in California that were just trying to worship God like we were worshiping, all these people had their lives snuffed out so senselessly. I was just reading this morning that uh, apparently there's been some big shooting in Chattanooga, Tennessee last night. We probably haven't even heard about that one yet. Folks, in, a, in our nation, forget about the world for a second. In our own very nation, we see that we are a people awash in violence with little hope I think, maybe I'm pessimistic, with little hope from any sort of meaningful change that this would stop anytime soon. Shouldn't we be deeply interested in what Jesus is doing right now in the midst of these things? When the world is so scary and dark and uncertain and chaotic, shouldn't we care about what Jesus is doing at this moment? Well, despite clearly needing it to be true, not just us, but everybody throughout human history, Schreiner gives a list of reasons why maybe we don't talk about the ascension as often as we should. First of all, let's start with the, with the, the most obvious one. The Bible just doesn't talk about it a whole lot either. Now, in some ways it does, and it doesn't. But only in Luke and Acts, which was written by 
one person, Luke the physician, only there we see the story covered explicitly. Do we get the details of what happened? And only then do we get it in about seven verses. Of the, of the whole Bible, only seven verses tell us the exact event as it transpired. Now, that's one reason maybe we don't talk about it, because it doesn't seem like the Bible is explicitly talking about it. But he goes on to say maybe it's other things. Maybe it seems like a bad plan to us for the Lord to go away and not to just establish His reign on earth right now in the way that we would like to see. Maybe that seems like a bad plan to us. Or maybe His going away just seems to have unclear spiritual implications. We just don't know the the spiritual purpose behind it. Not to mention, somebody ascending upward into the sky and disappearing is an abnormal thing. How do we make sense of that? We don't have any way to compare that to anything that we've ever seen before. And then of course, there's this too. The, the resurrection seems to be what captures uh, the New Testament author's attention the most. They tend to write about that doctrine as being the most crucial or the most important in understanding Jesus. So these are some reasons maybe we don't like to talk about the ascension or we just don't. But the doctrine of the ascension, I would posit, is a doctrine that shows us the centrality of Jesus Christ. Not just in the past, what He has done. Not just in the future, what we hope He'll do but in the very present, right now, where we seem to need Him most. Without Christ's ascension, the story of Jesus' work is actually incomplete. Without it, other Gospel teachings tend to get distorted and misaligned. Without it, the good news itself is truncated. And worst of all, Without the ascension, we could not truthfully say, if Jesus didn't ascend into heaven and to the presence of the Father to rule and reign, then in no meaningful way could we say that Jesus of Nazareth is King and Lord, Christ and Messiah. The thing that we hang all of our hope on, that Jesus is Lord and God, if He did not ascend, Whatever we believe about Him ultimately is meaningless. Now, up until this point, we've talked a lot and seen a lot about what happens if we miss out on the ascension. But let's focus positively on what the Bible actually does say about it and how we can understand and integrate that into our Christian life. So let's look again at Acts chapter 1, verses 9-11. through 11. See what exactly Luke has to say about this. And remember, this is his continuing story. Acts is a sequel to Luke. You know, Luke is really, the Gospel of Luke is the Acts of Jesus Christ in the world. And, and the Acts, sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles. That's the fuller title. You could also say it's really the acts of Jesus through His Holy Spirit. That's what the, the, the real theology of the book of Acts is. 
And so this is a book where Jesus continues His work. He may not be physically present with His apostles, with the church like they've been used to, but He is really, truly, authentically working in their midst through His Spirit, empowering His church to continue on what He began when He came to earth. And so now in just these three short verses, we read that after Jesus has given His final instruction to His apostles, His exhortation for them to not do anything in their own authority or power, but wait for the coming of His Spirit to equip them to go out and do wonders and all of it to point and bear witness to the good news that they have seen with their own eyes. After those last words, we read in verse 9, He was taken up while they were watching, and a cloud took, them, took Him out of their sight. So that's the event itself. Now while this was happening, while He was going into heaven, however that looked, whatever that actually means, Verses 10 and 11 show us their response to this. Suddenly, in their midst, while they're looking at the most unbelievable thing they've ever seen, two men that weren't there before in white clothes, we get the implication that these are angelic figures veiled in, in a human disguise. They stood by them and almost to us, rather nonchalantly asked, Fellows, what are you staring at? <laughs> what do you mean, what are we staring at? But they say, Jesus will come back. And He'll come back in the same way that He went. Out of heaven and from the cloud. Now, while at first gloss we read that, it might appear to us that it seems as if they're saying that this divine moment is no big deal. It seems as if they're saying, hey, this is just another run-of-the-mill day in the life of the disciples of Jesus. But what they're actually saying is quite literally the opposite. They're not saying the assumption of the Son of God in a human body back into the eternal immaterial heaven is not a big deal. In fact, they're saying the opposite. It's a huge deal. It's such a huge deal. It's so important that even while they're looking at it, these angels ask, why are you standing around and staring at this when you could be preparing to tell everyone you know about it? While you could be getting ready to go and share this Jesus with everyone you make eye contact with. I think that's really the cadence of their question. And it's why Matthew in his closing chapter, casts Jesus. You know, Matthew is a book written by a Jewish man, primarily to a Jewish audience. That's why we get some of the most Old Testament allusions and stories and names and places. Matthew takes us back to the, the vision that Daniel has and, and Daniel 7. At, Jesus is a fulfillment. He is a human being in God's place. that We read about in Daniel 7. Having all authority in heaven and on earth. That's how Matthew ends. And Mark ends... I, Mark is maybe one of my... As a person that just enjoys a good 
drama, you know, a good movie that hasn't, my mom hates this. When movies end open-ended with questions, oh, I love that. That's so good because it almost as if the filmmaker is saying, what are you going to make of this? That's how Mark's gospel ends, where the women run out of, away from the tomb and they're frightened, they're scared, and they don't want to go tell anybody about it, and then <gasps> end of book. What? Mark forces us to contemplate what happens after the resurrection. Or when we get to John, Jesus, more than any other gospel, is rife with this speech about going to the Father, going up to Him, departing back to Him. See, the ascension is on all the minds of these men as they write their Gospels and have borne witness to what Jesus has done. Furthermore, it's, it's such an important doctrine that the first five sermons that we ever hear in the, in the New Testament, all from Peter, either mention or heavily imply the ascension. Every single one. And not only that, but throughout the rest of the book of Acts, most of the testimonies and witnessing we get, the eyewitness speeches, work in the ascension somehow. It's why Paul can rightly call Jesus the Lord and Messiah across all of his letters because Jesus has been properly exalted. Right now He's reigning, Paul would have us know. He's at the Father's right hand right now. This is why we as Christians can live differently than we've ever lived before. Because that is true, so things are different for us. And it's why in John's apocalyptic revelation, we talked about this before, apocalypse is not the end of the world like the walking dead shows what Atlanta's going to look like one day. That's not the apocalypse. That's a bad rendering. The apocalypse is an unfurling, it's a, it's a ripping open of reality and God revealing to us what's actually going on in the world. That's what an apocalypse is. And so in John's apocalypse, he rips back the veil and shows us where Jesus who is the slain lamb, a lamb, a humble creature, slain, a creature that should not be living, stands and rules and reigns enthroned in heaven. The one to whom all glory and honor and strength is received. The one who is worshipped is God alone. That's what John shows us is the present and the future forever. The ascension is such an important doctrine. Karl Barth, one of the great 20th century theologians, notes this. He says, the rest of the New Testament was written with the truth and the power of the ascension in mind. He says this, the New Testament thinks and speaks from this point, that is the ascension, with a backwards reference to it. So in other words, everything that we're reading about from the apostles about Jesus, they're writing about because they have been radicalized by the sight of His ascending into heaven. The whole New Testament that we have 
The whole witness of the early church would people would be persecuted and, and go to their death willingly. It's because they have seen what God has done in Jesus. And they're willing to put all their chips... Maybe they don't understand it like we don't. They're willing to put everything they have on the line with Him and what God is doing through Him. The ascension, to paraphrase scholar Robert Maddox, the biblical scholar, not the old Atlanta mayor. I don't know if anybody remembers that name. He says this, for Luke, the ascension is the point of intersection where Jesus, the church, and the end times all come together. The doctrine of ascension helps us understand who God is, who we are, and what our future is together. The ascension, after all, is the verification that Jesus has actually saved us. That He is making us into a new people by His Spirit, and He will return truly, actually, historically to us in glory. The ascension is such a crucial truth that it was deemed an essential inclusion in the Apostles' Creed or the oldest Christian statement of faith that we regularly recite together here at our church with our siblings in the faith from many different centuries of churches and traditions all over the world. We say this together. We believe that He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what we believe, church. And because all of this is true, the church can and must conduct itself accordingly. You can't hear this information, say you believe it as a Christian, and live as if it is not true. You can't be passive about it. We are kingdom citizens of not only a risen Savior, but an ascended King who has made His intention to build His kingdom through His church certain. His ascension signals what has already begun. Whether we play nicely or play along or whatever. This is already in the works, even if we cannot see it or understand it from our limited perspective. The scope of the ascension is cosmic. Jesus Christ is King over the universe. And it's political. Jesus is King over all people and all nations. Whether they believe or accept that or not. Whether we believe or accept that or not. And it's liturgical. The ascension through our rituals and worships is the way we see that Jesus is truly God. Now truthfully, we don't have time this morning to unearth all the wonderful Old Testament passages that help us see how the ascension of Christ is not only a New Testament doctrine uh, or a, a, a surprising New Testament event, but it is the culmination of everything Israel was hoping for. It's the long story of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and New, reaching its double and triple and quadruple fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But before we close today, I do want to survey just a few Old Testament passages and characters to help us understand the importance of the ascension better. 
Again, this is not just some tacked-on doctrine to the end of our faith. It is something that runs central to what God has always planned to do through His Messiah, Jesus. Now folks, if you spend any amount of time reading the Old Testament, you begin to see how there are three particular offices that come to the forefront of the story. Three roles that are important. The role of prophet and priest and king. See, all of these positions bear the responsibility in some way. They're all a little different from one another, but they bear the responsibility of connecting God to people and people to God. Because of sin's guilt and power in our lives and our world, that severed our connection to the Creator. But through the priest and the prophet and the king, these roles, they relink us back to God in some way. And throughout the Old Testament, you have characters that stand out to us as having powerful ministries where they show us the divine through their work. You have uh, characters like Elijah or Isaiah, Aaron or Moses, David or Solomon, and all of them are focal points of God's activity in this world. We know about them today because God worked through people like this to reveal Himself to us who have lost sight of Him. But all of them fall desperately short. That's the tragedy of the Old Testament. We get to Malachi, or as the Jewish people put Second Chronicles at the end of their Old Testament. However you arrange it, we get to the end of those books. Still, the problem is here. Nothing is solved. And so the doctrine of the ascension matters because it shows us, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus and being received unto the Father, and in sending the Holy Spirit back to us, now inhabits these three offices for us perfectly. Now and forever. In the ascension, we see how Christ's role as a prophet is fulfilled. See, He has received power to reveal God's truth to our eyes to reveal God's reality to us who have long been blinded by the power of sin and death. So Jesus is the greater Elijah. Which is why on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah is there to show you Jesus is better. In the ascension, we see how Christ's role as a priest is fulfilled because now He intercedes for us in the presence of the Father as the perfect sacrifice who has not only been slain and offered, but now is risen and reigning. The only sacrifice that's ever done that before. Died and come back to life. He's greater than Moses, which is also why Moses is at the Mount of Transfiguration, but Jesus is the center. The law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, points us to Jesus as the hinge point. And in the ascension, we see how Christ's role as our King is fulfilled at the cross. Ironically, at the cross, He was crowned the Lord and Savior of the world. And now He has received a greater throne in heaven where in Philippians, we'll soon read in our study of Philippians together, every tongue and knee in heaven, hell and earth will proclaim Him King and Lord forever. So He's greater than David too, who is the great king 
of the Old Testament story. So Jesus' prophetic ministry of preaching truth over sin is vindicated in the ascension. Jesus' priestly role of bringing God and us together in reconciliation was accepted because of His ascension. Jesus' kingly rule is unfolding now from heaven to earth till kingdom come because of His ascension. Now Jesus is able to judge the nations like the prophets once did. It's why Daniel, the prophet, in chapter 7 of his book, is shocked when he peers into heaven. In Daniel 7, he sees the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. He sees Him there. And that's what you would expect to see in heaven. But then he looks at the throne of heaven and sees something you should not expect to see. He sees, what's this? He sees a human man sitting on the throne of heaven. And he writes this, starting in verse 13, and suddenly, suddenly, unexpectedly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Sound familiar? He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before Him. And He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve Him. His dominion, unlike all the dominions of all the rulers we've ever voted for or read about in history books, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's the prophetic role that Jesus fulfills. And now Jesus has atoned for us and is able to intercede for us like the priests. Do you remember how Moses goes up? Maybe this is not fresh on the brain. And we we stopped our Exodus study before we got to this section of Exodus. But in the next section, Exodus 19-24, through Moses goes up to the peak of Sinai at the top of the mountain where the sky and the earth come together. And that's where God is. Man and God meet together at that point. And God is enveloped in a cloud of thunder and lightning. It's so scary that the people stay away from them. But then they sin and go back to their idols and the, the mountain really begins to erupt. But Moses steps up and pleads for his wayward people. And the cloud that is representative of God's glory relents against these people. And then eventually, because of Moses' intercession, that cloud, that presence of God comes and settles on the tabernacle. God moves off of the mountain, out of His place, and moves onto the ground in the midst of the Israelites. His presence is with His people. Now, it's no wonder why John, in the beginning of his Gospel, says, and Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. That cloud of glory became a human man that set up his tent where we live. So you remember that. But remember how in the synoptic gospels, synoptic gospels, again, Moses appears alongside Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration and how a cloud of God's glory 
and presence comes among them. See folks, the cloud that we read about, this is probably why we get this so wrong. The cloud that we read about in Acts 1 is not just a big uh, nimbus cloud, a rain cloud that Jesus ascends to and He's on the other side of it somewhere. That's the way we've thought about it. But that is a reading detached from the Old Testament. This is why we have to read the Old Testament to understand our Christian doctrine so well. Because the cloud is not a rain cloud. The cloud is that same ethereal presence of God on earth. So when Jesus goes into the cloud, He isn't floating on endlessly into outer space like a mylar balloon with too much helium that a toddler let go of. He is going, maybe even a short distance, I believe, into the presence of God. That's the cloud He's going into. Jesus is our priest who has been received into the cloud, into the presence of God, so that He could intercede for us ever before His face. And finally, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, songs of coronation, royal songs written about and for King David and by King David show us that a truer and everlasting King has come in Jesus. Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. Jesus Himself pays special attention to it and says, riddle me this, religious leaders. What do you make of this? This is the declaration of the Lord. To my Lord. To Yahweh. To my Lord. What does that mean? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You, that king, are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. And Psalm 2 tells us, I will declare the Lord's decree. He has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have become your Father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. The good news for us today, Christian, is that these ancient Old Testament passages written by and about Prophets, priests, and kings are truly about our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. It's about what He is doing for us right now. Making the nations His inheritance, the ends of the earth His possession, is what He is doing right now. And so while the world is full of troubles, and it certainly is, And while our personal lives seem a total mess, and they are, we can both serve in eagerness, but rest in hopefulness, knowing that because Jesus Christ has ascended into the presence of God, it's He alone, Him alone, who rules and reigns right now. He sees all, 
He knows all and He has total power over all. And He tells us Himself that He has gone to prepare a place for us too. For us. Our King of glory has not ascended to the Father to be standoffish, but to always intercede for us. To make a future for us where we can live with Him in peace. Our ascended King Jesus, if you hear nothing else this morning, but I hope you have, if you hear nothing else, know that the ascended Jesus is for you. So lift up your eyes. Behold your King. His love and His life are for you. Let's pray. Father, help us now in our weariness and want, in our sickness and our sorrow, to look to Jesus, risen and ascended for us. Despite all the bad news this world has for us, may this good news keep us going until He returns to set all things right and make all things new. For it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray all these things. Amen.